Good morning. If you're new around here, my name is Barry Pett, and uh, I have the privilege of, of serving as one of the pastors here, and today it is my very high privilege to share the Word of God with you. So, uh, you know, little, a little known fact about me that probably many of you don't know is that I was a, uh, a music major in college, a trumpet major to be exact, and uh, one of, my, one of my favorite memories from college was the time that I got to hang out with the great trumpet player, Doc Severinsen. Now, I, I understand that probably a lot of you here um, probably have never heard of Doc Severinsen. But for anyone, if you're, if you're 50 or over, you, you probably remember Doc as the, as the leader of the Tonight Show band during the, the 30 years from 1962 to 1992 that, that the, the king of late night, Johnny Carson, hosted the Tonight Show, right? Um, and yes, for those of you, you millennials here, that's the same show that Jimmy Fallon hosts now and Jay, Jay Leno before him. Um, you, know, you know, Doc was one of, the, one of the greatest trumpet players of the 20th century. And so when I heard that he was going to be playing at a, at a small jazz club in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where my college was, um, I and one of my, my trumpet major buddies, we, man, we made sure we got, we got tickets right away. And, and I can remember two things from that night. Um, the first thing I remember is going to the concert thinking that I was a pretty good trumpet player. Um, but after seeing and hearing Doc up close, um, I left her thinking I should probably never call myself a trumpet player again. <laughs> but you know, my, my, my best memory came after the show um, when my friend and I decided that we would try to use our status as trumpet majors to go to the green room where Doc was and, and see if we could talk the guy that's guarding the door into letting us go in and meet him. And to, uh, to our great surprise, Doc not only let us in, but we got to hang out with him for like 30 or 40 minutes. Um, we, we just sat and we, we talked about all things trumpet. We talked about the Tonight Show. We, he even let us kind of hold, he got to hold his trumpet while he was talking about all the, the uh, customizations he had made to it. And man, it was a, it was a great moment. And, and I was meditating on our text this week. My mind went back to that evening 40 years ago. And I was so thrilled to get, to, to get a private audience for 30 minutes with a guy that most people in this room probably have never heard of. And I compare it to the great privilege that each of us have every day to have a private audience for as long as we want with the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. And yet we typically don't hold that nearly in as high esteem as a brief moment that we may have to meet a human celebrity who's typically gone as fast as yesterday's breakfast. So my hope for, for my message today is to, to remind you again that, that like Mary of old, Jesus calls us to choose the good portion of relishing, being in his presence and sitting at his feet and I can assure you it is an infinitely greater privilege than being with any human celebrity. I love the new practice that, that Kevin and Lawson have started at the front of their messages of praying. So before I jump to the text, take a moment to pray that God would even now begin to open your eyes and ears today to behold wondrous things from his word.
Pray for me that God would bring his voice to my words that will lead to the building up of his church. Father, be present. Would you speak that we may listen? In your name, amen. So I chose the good portion as the title for my message today based on the the ESV version's wording of verse 42 that says, Mary chose the good portion. I love that wording. You see, the the word portion comes from the Greek word merida, which means portion or or tract or territory or inheritance. Now, we live in Texas, so so I'll use steak as an example. Uh, (laughs) I mean, we Texans know that there are are many portions or cuts of steak, right? And I I don't here to get get into an argument over steak, but but most of us would probably say that, that the ribeye is the good portion, it's, it's the best cut. It's, it's the most tender, the most juicy, the most flavorful. So if, if last week we addressed the question, how do we inherit eternal life? Then this week, I think we're going to be addressing the question, how do we inherit abundant life? And the here and now, or as we'll call it, the scripture calls it the good portion my goal will be to answer that question through, through five observations from our text today, followed by four application points. I think it's clear this story is a comparison of the actions of two sisters. And for our purposes today, I want to summarize those actions as doing and being. And I want to frame my observations around those terms. So, so let's get started. Observation one. Being is not to be done at the exclusion of doing. Being is not to be done at the exclusion of doing. Now, it may, be, it may seem obvious, but I think it's important that we make this observation first. You see, this is really a pretty familiar text that probably most of you hear. And I think too often that, that this, this, uh, this message, this text gets simplified or boiled down to Mary good, Martha bad, be Mary, not Martha. Amen, go in peace. <laughs> That's, we're not done. <laughs> I, I think, and here's the thing, is I, I think Martha gets unfairly judged by a lot of people. I, I think it's a good thing we probably lose our sin natures in heaven, or it may go a little rough for Martha there. I mean, I just imagine all of the, the kind of the knowing glances, kind of the slight shaking of the heads, and oh, I know you, you're, you're bad portion, Martha. <laughs> um, so for all of the ladies here, especially who have ever been referred to as a Martha, let's look at the whole story of Martha for just a minute. First, I think it's important to note that, that Jesus loved Martha. And we know this from John eleven five, 5, which says, now Jesus loved Martha. Doesn't get any simpler than that, does it? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And I say this to make sure that we don't lump Martha in with the doers of Matthew 7, 22, that also boast, that they boasted in their doing only to have Jesus say to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But you see, Jesus knew Martha. He loved Martha. Even in our text today where Jesus uses the phrase, Martha, Martha, it's a term of endearment. He knew Martha was serving out of her gifting and her love for Jesus. As we read about Martha in Luke 10 and and also in John 11, we see that Martha not only had the beautiful gift of hospitality, she was also a great lady of faith. In John 11, we read that that after her brother died and Jesus finally showed up, it, it was Martha who ran out to meet him. And it was Martha who demonstrated her faith by saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now you see, not only was she confident that that Jesus could have prevented her brother's death, but you catch the, 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 the extension of it? Even better, she says, even now. Even now. Meaning, meaning she's saying, even now, three days after his death, if you just say the word, he can live. <laughs> now, we can, we can rightly question her choice of words and her tone with Jesus, but, but we can't deny her faith, right? And I think it also should be noted that Jesus didn't rebuke Martha's serving he didn't, he didn't condemn or demand that she stop preparing and, and Papa squat next to her sister. He knew Martha's intentions were good and based on her love for Jesus. You see, Martha's issue was not her doing or her motives. It was her heart, which we will address more in just a minute. The story of Mary and Martha is about Priorities. It's about priorities. It's not a manifesto against working or serving. We think of the word priorities. The root word in priorities is, of course, prior, right? Prior, meaning before. Based on what we know about these sisters, it's, it's probably safe to assume that Martha often spent unhindered time with Jesus. And Mary likely often helped with the hospitality chores. <laughs> to riff on, on Matt Perriman's popular book, What's Best Next? I think the part of this story is to teach what's best first. What's best first? Observation two. Being and doing are both choices we make. They're both choices we make. I think it's significant to note that, that Jesus said that Mary chose the good portion, Right? I think it's likely that both women were probably conflicted. I mean, Mary knew her sister, right? She knew choosing to sit at Jesus' feet and listen would probably not sit well with her, with her sister Martha. She likely even felt a little, a little guilty for not helping. And then on the other hand, Martha, I suspect Martha was probably conflicted also. She probably would have loved to sit and listen and probably knew it was the better choice. But her heart of hospitality overrode her better instincts at that time. And similarly, doing and being are both choices that we make every day. Knowing what is best first 
doesn't mean that we always do it, does it? It doesn't mean that we regularly choose it. The tyranny of the urgent is a universal struggle. Choosing to spend time sitting and learning at the feet of Jesus each morning before we do anything else. Let's face it, it's not always easy or convenient. But it is the best choice. Observation three. Prioritizing doing over being leads to distracted, worried, and upset about many things. So I started by giving Martha some shine, but we have to address the elephant in the room with her as well. Martha was clearly mad at her sister and maybe even madder at Jesus for allowing her to do what she was doing. Can I just say that if you, if you find yourself in a place where you are hurling angry accusations and demands at Jesus, you should probably check your heart. You see, that's precisely what Jesus is gently leading Martha to do. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Let's note that Jesus' response was not angry in return. He, he, he didn't rebuke her. He didn't, re, he, he didn't come back at her for her blatant disrespect. And he could have easily and, and rightly played the, how dare you? Do, you? do you know who you're talking to card? But he didn't, did he? Instead, like a skilled surgeon, he went straight to the root of the problem. And what was that? Her spirit was filled with worry and anxiety because at the moment she had bought the lie that God desires our service more than our presence. And because her spirit was distracted, worried, and anxious, then her heart and her mind became filled with resentment, with bitterness, with anger, and with judgment, which then flowed out of her mouth with some pretty regrettable words. Anyone here relate to that? Not me. <laughs> you see, our words and actions are not our problems. They're the manifestation of what's going on in our thoughts and feelings, which is the manifestation of our spirit or our innermost being. That's why David says in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How does God create a clean heart in us and renew a right spirit? I would contend that's when we sit at his feet and listen. It's when we slow down and we allow ourselves to simply be still and know that he is God. And that leads to our fourth observation. Prioritizing being over doing leads to worship. Leads to worship. This observation comes from a similar scene that we read about in John 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, it's possible that this was the same event described in Luke 10. But remember, this family was very close friends of Jesus. And he likely had many dinners with them during his his ministry. So it's probably more likely that it was a different event. Especially since this, in this Luke event happened right before, probably came after the Luke event because this was right before uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem for what we call for Holy Week, right? So assuming for a moment that it was, it was a separate event, here's what we observe. Well, the first thing we see is Martha serving again. Now, the cynical view of that would be that she didn't learn her lesson from the prior dinner. But I think maybe a more gracious perspective would be that she did learn from the previous meeting and was now was serving with joy as an act of worship from other time spent with Jesus. No, she's, there's, no there's nothing here about her, her making demands or yelling at Jesus or Jesus having to do anything. She just says, and Martha served. This time the story includes her brother Lazarus who was reclining at table with them, probably right next to his sister. And given that Jesus had just kind of just called his rotting corpse out of a tomb a few days before this, sitting at Jesus was an appropriate response, I would say. And finally, we see Mary, once again, sitting at the feet of Jesus, except this time she's doing more than listening, isn't she? This time she's anointing his feet with expensive perfume and wiping them with her hair. Who does that? Well, we know at least Mary and and one other person in the Bible, right? I mean, a few weeks ago when we were in Luke 7, we read about a prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. When they questioned Jesus about the actions of the prostitute, her response was, he who is forgiven much loves much. Remember, Mary too had just watched Jesus call her brother from death to life, walked him right out of a tomb. When you are so overwhelmed with love for Jesus, because of his incomprehensible love towards you that all you can do is simply weep at his feet. If you feel compelled to use your hair as a wash rag, as a sign of humility, I I don't know what you call that, but I call it worship. Amen? This indeed is the good portion. I love the last sentence of that verse. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Hmm. And I would contend that that house wasn't just filled with the fragrance of perfume. It was filled with the fragrance of worship. I mean, how do you, how do you observe someone worshiping this humbly and this beautifully and not be brought to tearful worship as well? And that leads to my final observation. Number five, being is the chief end of man. Being is the chief end of man. 
this passage's summit or the, the crown jewel has to be the first five words of verse 42. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Jesus is saying, oh, sweet Martha, you're, you're doing a lot of good things. But they're causing you to be anxious and upset because right now all of your doing isn't flowing out of, out of the only thing that matters. And what's the one thing? Sitting and listening at the Lord's feet. I've always appreciated how John Piper adapts the Westminster Catechism to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Yes, God is indeed most glorified in us. He looks most spectacular when we are most satisfied in him. Church, hear me. We were created for one thing, to be in the presence of God. The entire point of humanity, the point of all scripture, the remarkable story of redemption is all wrapped up, I think, maybe best stated in, in Revelations 21.3, which says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. David says it in Psalm 27.4. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What's the one thing? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Paul says it in Philippians 3 when he says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Here it is again. One thing I do. One thing I do. What is it, Paul? Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. What is that call? That God would draw all people to himself. He would have a people. He is their God. We are his people, and we dwell with him. Augustine phrased it well in his prayer that said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So the question that should be going through our minds right now is, Am I distracted by my many tasks? Am I worried and anxious about many things? Or am I choosing the good portion of prioritizing being in God's presence, sitting at his feet and listening? So you might be thinking at the moment, okay, I get it, I understand. Only one thing is necessary, and, and, I, and I want to choose the good portion. Well, what does that look like 
in my life and in 2022. I mean, Jesus isn't physically present for me to, to sit at his feet. I want to I close with, with four application practices that I, that I trust will help us answer that question. The first two deal with how to practice the good portion. And the last two, I think, will help us create internal and external space to help you do the first two more effectively and consistently. Most of you here know that I, I'm just coming off of, of being on sabbatical this summer. And I can tell you that these four practices absolutely form the essence of my sabbatical season. And I'm glad to say that they have carried over now that I'm back. I have to give credit here to my, to my friend Shelby McDonald. Shelby attends here and, and she works professionally as a licensed counselor. And I asked Shelby prior to the sabbatical if she had any, any good books she would refer for, for sabbatical season. Of course, being a good counselor, she gave me a whole list of books. Um, but, but she said, the book that had to be at the top of the list was a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Well, I can confidently say that God spoke, pow spoke powerfully through Shelby because that is precisely the book that I needed first. And it largely defined how I spent the rest of my sabbatical season I think these four core practices detailed in this book apply beautifully to our subject today. So the first practice I want us to look at is the practice of solitude. If the heart of the good portion is being in the presence of God, then there's no practice more important than solitude. God doesn't want to compete for your attention. There's a reason Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 6 they're to go in their closet and close the door when they pray. And I think it's more than just a guard against spiritual peacocking in public. The Lord wants us to have an audience of one with him. This is not just an incredible honor and privilege that we have. It's essential to our spiritual well-being. And I, and I can say this really confidently because it was an essential practice of Jesus himself. Jesus was, con, was continually going off by himself to pray. We see one example of this found in Mark 1. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found them, they said, everyone is looking for you. It seems that where Jesus goes seemed to be a common question with his disciples. And what we see is that the, the busier he got, the more he would sneak off alone to pray with his father. I love the section of Luke 5 that says, but now even more, the report went about him, went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Verse 16, but he would, with, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Isn't that cool? Guys, if we, if we are serious about being imitators of Christ, and if solitude and prayer was an essential element of the Lord's lifestyle, 
then how can it not be an essential element of ours as well? I think one of my favorite new habits I established this summer was to, was to roll out of bed, make the coffee, and then no phone, nothing but just my cup of coffee. I would go out and sit on my back porch for 20 minutes or so and just sit in the presence of the Lord. And I, and I will tell you, it was, it was awkward at first. It was loud, you know, it was like, ah, the, all the morning thoughts and everything's rushing. And it, and, and, it, and it took a few days to get the barrage of thoughts in my head to quiet down. But when they began to finally play themselves out, something really special began to happen. I began to really hear and listen to the still, quiet voice of God. Prayer began to actually be a conversation rather than just a fragmented monologue on my part. Some days, he would lead me to just to recount the blessings of the prior day. Some days, I was led to examine what was going on in my heart when I responded poorly to Carolyn or someone else. And some days, I would just simply enjoy being still and knowing that he was God. And then after this, when I would go inside and, and open my Bible for a time of devotional, let me tell you, it, it's amazing how much sweeter my devotional time was. It was like my heart was open and, and eager to hear God speak through his word. And, and you see, that's not the end. Because the way I think about it, that was just like a two-hour tailgate meeting. If you don't know, tailgate meetings are, are what construction guys have at the start of their workday. They all gather around the tailgate of the boss's truck, and, and, and he goes over the plans for the day and gives some safety reminders, and, and then they go build something together. And you see, I think the good portion is not just this magical few minutes before you start your day. It is your day and your life. The, the, the moments of solitude are like the tailgate meeting. And then he says, come on, let's go. Today, today you're going to meet John, who's discouraged with life, and, and I'm going to use him, I'm going to use you to give him a reason for hope. Oh, and, and, and then we're, later on we're going to meet Audrey. Audrey's going to be stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire, and, and you know what? I'm going to answer her prayer for help through you. Oh, and then later, you're going to strike up a conversation with a guy in the, in the cubicle behind you. And today, he's going to share that he's terrified that his marriage is about to end due to an addiction. And through me, you're going to listen compassionately, and, we, and we're, you're going to share the hope that is found in the gospel. You see, this... This is life as it's meant to be for a follower of Christ. And I tell you, it's, a, it's an abundant life filled with meaning and purpose if you're ready to choose the good portion. Practice two, Sabbath. In many ways, um, I think Sabbath is just an extended version of solitude. 
And, and I, I have to confess, for, you know, for most of my adult life, Sabbath has been non-existent or done poorly. Over the last couple of years, I have been convicted of my need to grow in this area. And, and, and I can say, I think I've gotten, wonkily have gotten better. But this summer, I think I finally came to understand that Sabbath wasn't an occasional luxury, but it's an essential element to a healthy soul. It's funny how God gives us Sabbath as this amazing gift for our good and well-being, and, and yet it seems that we often treat it like a, like a kid opening a package of socks on Christmas Day. Like solitude, you can't separate Sabbath from the good portion of our text. I think it's more like the crown jewel of the good portion. Sabbath is all of the applications I mentioned here put together in a single day. I like the definition of Sabbath as a, as a 24-hour period filled with only things that are restful and worshipful. And I can tell you, I am quickly becoming dogmatic about, about observing Sabbath, not out of religious duty, but because it's amazing. It's like a detox of all of the stress and busyness built up over the week. And, and I can tell you, Sabbath will look different for everyone. For me, in my season of life, I, I, I sleep in a little longer. I spend a little more time on my back porch to start the day. I have longer devotional times. I take walks, read, take a nap, play with the grandkids, date my wife, play an instrument, take another nap. Really, enjoy a long dinner with friends. Just all of that. Don't think of this as just a luxury of, of me being an empty nester. Guys, I wish I had been better about practicing Sabbath earlier in my life. I wish I had modeled and taught my kids the beauty and importance of this gift from God. And I encourage you, don't wait until you're my age. Be flexible. Give yourself a lot of grace as you, as you work to practice this. For me, Friday is my default Sabbath. But some weeks, my schedule means that I, that I do it from noon Friday to noon Saturday or, or even evening Friday to evening Saturday. The key is to make it a 24-hour period. Sabbath is a day to remember that, that we are finite and mortal. To remember that we weren't designed to go nonstop. Our bodies and minds need rest. And I think it's also a great reminder that God holds all things together, not us. We can step away for a day and the world will keep going just fine. Practice three, simplicity. So if the first two practices were about how to practice the presence of God, the last two are how to reconfigure your life so that you have the margin to actually practice them. So simplicity is exactly what it sounds like. It's simplifying your life to make space to better practice presence with God. I think the most obvious way to practice simplicity is to literally reduce the amount of stuff in your life. 
<laughs> Father, you know, Americans, we, we have an obsession with toys. The problem is that they're massive time suckers. Many people have to work longer hours or even multiple jobs just to afford or to make payments on their stuff. And then there's the extra time that you use spending or, or you're using or playing with your stuff. And then on top of that, there's the extra time that you have to spend maintaining or fixing your stuff. I mean, there, there's a reason that the, the old saying is that the two greatest days of a boat owner are the day he buys it and the day he sells it, right? If you don't think you have room in your life to start observing Sabbath or practicing solitude, start with eliminating a few of your biggest toys or luxuries. I think you'll find you'll be amazed at how much time you gain. A second and maybe even more important way to practice simplicity is to simplify the number of voices in your life. I think the reason many find it maybe almost impossible to practice silence and solitude is that most of us have a nonstop roar of voices coming at us all the time. We are constantly being bombarded with text and email and voicemail and phone calls and Slack and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, even Church Center. And then on top of that noise, we add dozens of podcasts and news apps and music and on and on it goes. And as you know, these voices don't just disappear after hearing them, do they? Your mind kind of serves as this echo chamber and you're, you continually start replaying and processing these voices and it makes us restless and sleepless and, it's, and we're filled with stress. Trying to practice silence and solitude with all of this noise, it's like trying to have an intimate conversation in the middle of Buffalo Wild Wings on a Sunday afternoon during football season. If, if, if you want to hear the still, quiet voice of your Savior. To borrow the phrase of, of uh, the singer Alanis Morissette, you're going to have to tell many of those other voices that they are uninvited. Gratefully for me, I, I, I abandoned social media years ago. But, but, you know, one of the best ways that I began to implement this, implement this during my sabbatical season was to turn off all of the notifications on my phone. Let me tell you, it has been amazing. I have one or two times a day where I read and respond to emails, texts, Slack, and whatever ways people reach out to me. And you know what I find is not only am I more productive, I respond better, but most importantly, my spirit is also more peaceful. Not having this nonstop pinging of my phone. And then the last one, fourth practice, slowness. Hmm. Boy, do we need this one. Can we all agree that the speed of life has gotten utterly insane? I mean, just a few hundred years ago, life moved at the speed of walking. All communication was face-to-face, -face, right? Well, and then we learned to ride horses and life got a little faster. Uh, and then came trains, and life got even faster for a few. Oh, and then about a century ago, cars were invented, and, 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 and life got even faster. Well, and then came airplanes, and then radio, and television, and life got faster still. 
And we know a little over 20 years ago, Al Gore invented the internet, and it was like someone pushed the warp speed button on a spaceship. And now we're just hanging on for dear life. And, and, and the crazy thing is we're still trying to figure out how to go faster. There's a thing, we have these things called life hacks, right? What are they? They're just tips on how to move a little faster and be more efficient. We get irritated if Amazon doesn't deliver our package within 24 hours. I mean, it's gotten so bad, we can't even listen to podcasts or whatever you listen to at regular speed. We gotta go to two times or three times so we can get through it a little faster. Hear me. Guys, if we wanna have any hope of experiencing the good portion that we've discussed today, we have to slow down. I think the area that most of us probably need to start with is our schedule. Most of us live with absolutely no margin of time in our day. We cram pack our schedules and, and frantically speed from one task to another, one meeting or event after another, and we're not present at any of them. Oh, we may be physically present, but our minds are already thinking about the next thing we have to do, and we're already thinking about how we can maybe cut this one a little short because we're already late for the next one. Guys, it's a terrible way to live. And I'm as guilty as anyone. A lot of you know the schedule that I tried to keep. All in the name of trying to maximize my life for the sake of the kingdom. Some of you here have heard me say, hey, I only have about 20 years left here at best. I'm an empty nester. My health is still good. Therefore, man, it is go time, baby. And, and to those that I said that to, I am so sorry. I was wrong. And I set a terrible example. Don't worry, I'm not quitting and joining a Sudoku circuit, but, but you know, with God's help, I'm, I'm trying to make some changes. I want to do less and do those fewer things better. I want to change my life so you guys will stop feeling the need to preface every communication with, hey, I know you're busy. I'm determined to slow down and create more margin so that I can be fully present at every task and conversation and meeting of my day. And I, and I want this for you too. We all need to stop thinking that people saying to us, hey, I know you're busy, is a compliment or an acknowledgement of our importance. It's not. I found that... Practicing slowness in the little things actually helps me slow down with the big stuff. So for example, I've, uh, I've started to drive more in the right-hand lane. I, I take the feeder road more than the toll road now. Saves money. Weird thing, but I actually, with Care Life, we started playing practicing this this summer. We're driving exactly the speed limit. Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I've got, I've, I've actually, we'll, we'll get into the long line at the grocery store just to be present or park in the farthest spot. 
Guys, I have a long way to go. And I am in no way an expert in, in, in a contemplative life. But you know, I think the great gift of my sabbatical season was getting just a taste of the good portion. And I can tell you, I have no desire to ever go back. I have felt God saying to me, Barry, Barry, you are distracted by your many tasks, but only one thing is necessary. There's a poem I ran across recently that included the phrase, go placidly amidst the noise and haste. That's my desire for myself and for each of you. So as I close, I implore you to examine your life. Ask God to reveal where you need to simplify and slow down so that you have the time space and the mind space to sit at Jesus' feet and listen. To To be able to actually take and enjoy a weekly Sabbath day and to spend all of your waking hours in his presence, whether in times of contemplation or in your life's work and responsibilities. So I want to close with some well-known words of a man by the name of C. Austin Miles. And I think Mr. Miles was a man who demonstrated that he both understood and experienced the good portion that we have discussed today through the words of a beautiful hymn that he penned a century ago. And the hymn is called, In the Garden. In it he said, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. If you know it, sing the chorus with me. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Let's pray. I want to take just a moment to practice what we just discussed. So for you second, for a few seconds, just be still before the Lord. Ask that he reveal to you what you most need to hear from this message today. For some here, it may be that God has either been a non-factor in your life or he's just a distant deity that you try to appease or please by by your good deeds. But maybe today you feel him drawing you to a personal relationship as his child.
Man, I would encourage you as our prayer team moves to the back, would, would encourage you to go back. Allow one of these prayer, tem- prayer team members to pray with you and share with you about the incredible God, love God has for you, about the extremes that he went to be in relationship with you, both now and for eternity. Maybe you hear God saying to you as he has to me, oh, my child, you, you are distracted by your many tasks. But only one thing is necessary. You may want to go back and let someone pray with it. You can begin the journey towards living in the good portion. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful story and for the stunning message that you, the creator and the sustainer of all things, you desire us to sit and be still at your feet, to listen, to learn, to worship, and to just relish being in your presence. God, would you move in our hearts today to prioritize abiding in your presence so that our doing flows peacefully and joyfully out of the abundance of our being with you. In your precious name we pray, amen.